Welcome to The Meg Robinson Show, exploring the stories that make us who we are. I'm your host, Meg Robinson. FBI agent Walter Lamar is one of only two agents in the history of the FBI to win the Shield of Bravery twice. This four-part series called Diary of an FBI Agent tells the behind-the-scenes story of how Mr. Lamar, a Native American who grew up on a series of reservations, becomes an FBI agent using intuition and a keen sense of his surroundings to solve cases. We get his personal inside perspective on two late 20th century events in American history, the standoff in Waco, Texas in 1993 and the Oklahoma City bombing in 1995. He was directly and deeply involved in both tragedies. Part one of this series explains the connection between Mr. Lamar's early life close to nature as a Native American and his ultimate decision to work for the FBI. Part two traces his early years with the agency apprehending fugitives and bank robbers. The third part is his personal rendition of the standoff in Waco, Texas. Finally, part four tells the story of the Oklahoma City bombing and how again intuition played a key role. And now, part one, a Native American joins the FBI. Your grandfather was a sheriff, your father a policeman, your mother worked at the Bureau of Indian Affairs, and because of her work, you grew up on a number of Native American reservations. Well, it was interesting growing up because being Blackfeet and and Wichita, um, obviously I have relatives from both tribes, and and those relatives wanted to ensure that we had, myself and my sisters, had some understanding of who we were, identity. But then growing up on these different reservations, it was interesting because when you're living amongst a tribe— Basically, you're learning their traditions and learning something more about their culture. And when I was probably in the, maybe I was six or seven years old, living on the Wind River Reservation in Wyoming, we had a, uh, a babysitter, and her name was Winnie Big Road. And Winnie was a Rapaho, and she was a traditionalist. So at one point, I, I, I'd woken up, and, and Winnie was already there. And I had a dream, and I told Winnie about the dream. And in the dream, I had, I could hear voices from um, the, the mountains, and I could see the far-off mountains in this dream, and I could hear voices coming from those. And they were calling me. So I wasn't, I wasn't fearful at all when I woke up, but I told Winnie about it. And Winnie said that those are the grandfathers, and they're, they're calling you. And she says, you're going to have a gift, and you're going to have a special gift. Uh, she said, I don't know what that is. I don't really know what that means exactly at this point, but there's something going to be a bit different about you. And so I, I took that. Of course, I was just, you know, six or seven years old, and it, um, it, but, it, but I did hear it and, it, and it stuck. So I kind of always thought that. I didn't know what that meant either. But in later years, and 
um, when you talk about my FBI career, uh, it, it's a combination of, um, well, I guess we refer to it as intuition, instinct, um, that inner voice. It's an inner voice. And when I've hearkened back to it and thought about Winnie's words, I think she was telling me then that that's what the gift was, was the ability to listen and the ability to observe. And what I recognized is because, uh, and I really believe in, in our genetic memories. I think we carry the memories of all those who have gone before us. And a lot of the warriors that came before me, they were um, in the communities, they were um, distinguished, they were respected, um, revered in some cases. And those warriors, when they went out on war parties and, and raiding parties and hunting parties, for their own survival and the very survival of the tribes, they had to pay attention to life signals. They had to pay attention to what the environment, what nature was telling them, what they were hearing and what they were seeing. Because everything we see, everything we hear, has a message. As years went by, and in, in later years, I started probably fostering what I thought the gift was. And I started paying attention and listening and, and, and observing and listening to life signals. And my mother's always been very big on that as well, talking about life signals and what they tell us. So after high school, um, I went to a college that was only 60 miles away from my, my parents' home in Oklahoma. And I studied what I was interested in. And I was very interested in welding, drafting, auto mechanics, um, all things uh, that have a tool bag. And, um, and I got a degree in industrial arts. And then I followed up that with uh, my working on my master's for education. Well, I decided at one point that I wanted to move back to the Blackfeet Reservation and um, I guess further explore my identity there. And um, as I got there, that so happened they needed to have an industrial arts teacher, a shop teacher, and, uh, and that's what I ended up doing. Not that I was particularly searching out a teaching job, but because my, my education suited that and they needed it, I went to work as a teacher. So how did you wind up working for the FBI? I think it was in 1978, I went to Albuquerque, New Mexico to a big conference. It's a National Congress of American Indians, and they have a big conference each year. And my parents were going to be there, and my dad asked me to come down um, and basically join the family. And, and how all, long had you been teaching at this point? Uh, about a year and a half. Okay. And I get down there, and the FBI, and they were Native Americans that were manning the booth, and it was a Comanche fella and a, Mo and a, and a guy from the Mojave uh, tribe. Big, tall guys. Uh, okay. And very impressive in their suits and, and the booth and with the FBI seal. And they started talking to me and asking me what my interests were and if I had an interest in the FBI. Uh, you know, it was it was one of those things where if you don't have uh, an Uncle Bob who's in the FBI or neighbor Jim who's in the FBI, you don't really have role models that, that suit that. So it seems very unattainable. When I saw these two Native Americans that were in the FBI, I thought, hey, that's something that maybe I could do as well. And I got interested, filled out an application. 
You know, in prepping for this interview, I read the book called Killers of the Flower Moon, which told the story of the Osage tribe murders. The Osage were one of the wealthiest communities in the world, I learned, because they lobbied and got mineral rights for their reservation, which turned out to be a huge repository of oil. Uh, One of the first big cases of what was then called the Bureau of Investigation under Hoover, later to be called the FBI, uh, was solving a series of murders within the Osage tribe. So I didn't realize that there was a strong connection between Native Americans and the early days of the FBI. So you're teaching on a reservation you're at a conference, you meet the FBI recruiters who are Native Americans, and you decide to apply. So I gathered up and I, I um, finished my teaching job, moved down to Oklahoma, and believing that I was going right into the FBI Academy. Well, then I got the bad news and the FBI said, well, we're in a hiring freeze and we're not going to be hiring for the foreseeable future. But you can come to work here and you can be a support personnel or a clerk. So I went to work in 1980 for the FBI. So after a few years, you were accepted for training to become an FBI agent. The switch from teaching school to being in the FBI obviously was was dramatic. And it was dramatic not just from teaching school to going into the FBI, but I, I grew up on reservations my life, my whole life uh, up to that point, and I had never really been around big cities. I had never uh, really lived uh, that kind of lifestyle at all. So when I'm sitting in the FBI Academy in Quantico, Virginia, uh, it, it was all it was all very uh, intimidating, and I had a class full of, of colleagues that were all attorneys that were PhDs, and here I was teaching shop on the Blackfeet Reservation. So what was that like for you? It's Well, when, I, when the first day in class, uh, we went around the classroom and everybody inter- stood and introduced themselves. And as they stood and introduced themselves, an you know, a, attorney um, um, graduated uh, magna cum laude from Harvard, and then we've got the next attorney who was a uh, a, a deputy attorney general for the state of, and then we go to the next guy who was a PhD and was actually a rocket scientist. And then we go to the <laughs> a next, real rocket scientist, a real rocket yeah. scientist. And as we go through this this lineup, it was just one right after the other. And then it comes to me, and I was almost embarrassed to say what I had been doing—that I'm from the Blackfeet Reservation, and I've been teaching school for the past two years. And I've been teaching shop. So when you, amongst this group of people, it, it was very intimidating. And I felt very small in that classroom. So when I, when I did go to the academy and then made my introduction as a shop teacher um, and having been a clerk, uh, there, I believe there was a lot of stigmatism attached to it. And then being Native American um, even further... And what was the reaction of people when they realized your background was different? And They looked at me like, this guy won't be here very long. <laughs> he won't last. 
really and, oh yeah there was there was <laughs> there was little or no doubt that when I, when they when i was describing uh who i was and where i came from they they all kind of turned around and it was that look of well um don't get too settled in cuz you won't be here long so there was a point in the, in the very early days of, of being at the FBI Academy, and you understand what the what it's like around here weather-wise. Well, I, I went in in February, so there was a, a, a cool, chilly night, and I walked away from the the dormitory and I went out into uh, the, the woods, and and you know it's all nothing but dry leaves on the ground, mm-hmm. um, and I just curled up in a fetal position and cried. Really? Because I thought, what in the world am I doing here? Wow. And that, too, was one of those moments where those life signals are important. And I knew when I got up and walked away from those woods and back into the dormitory that not only would I prevail, but I would prevail with strength. And what do you think happened out in the woods? I don't know. I don't really know. I I I think that when I was there and I w- and and basically I felt completely beat down. Mm-hmm. And and but laying there and and praying, mm-hmm. I believe that um my identity resurfaced and that identity uh and and I and and identity is really important to me and we'll talk about that a little bit later when we delve further into my career about the importance of identity. And I think at that moment, my identity was reinforced. Who I am and who I was at that time was reinforced. And I came out of that with strength. And it was interesting that all of that happened outdoors, that it happened kind of in nature. Right. Uh, and I don't really know what that means, but it just strikes me as symbolic it, that you had the courage to go on. So you get this renewed confidence at that point, and you finish. What was the rest of your experience like in the academy? Well, in the academy, um, fortunately, I, I, I could shoot, and I already knew how to shoot. And I was a, a pretty good shot before I got there. I could handle firearms. So I had no problem with firearms. I was um, physically very strong and athletic. So I had no problems with that part of it. What I thought I'd really have difficulty with was the academics because my academic background compared to my classmates was so insignificant in context. But I ended up carrying the highest academic average uh, through my entire class until the very last test and and um, one of the uh, one of my um, colleagues ended up uh, beating me on a test and so I ended up having the second highest academic average in a class and and that just was unbelievable that I that that was the case how did that happen with all these lawyers and you know assistant attorney generals and whatever it in your class they would be well first of all it's difficult because not everybody could shoot not everybody was in that same kind of physical shape so if you were weak in an area then you had to spend 
that much more time working out. You had to spend that much more time on firearms. You had to wake up way early to go out and run. And so it took away from study time and so on. Plus, they... The, the folks that were there, their their whole life had been taking notes and, and listening in class and taking notes and taking notes. Most of my life had been listening. So I sat and I listened as opposed to taking a lot of notes. Fortunately, I had uh, a pretty strong memory mm-hmm. and I was able to take things into the, the tests and take them off the top of my head because I could remember from the classroom and I didn't overanalyze what was being told to us. And that skill of listening, do you think that's related to your childhood? Well, I think if you ask my parents, they would definitely say that I wasn't a very good listener. But I, but I do think that has been from my entire life because I'm a very curious person. And when you're curious, you want to hear answers. You want to hear stories. You want to know about things. So if you listen very intently, then those things stick. And they're in your mind, and and it and your memory is stronger from listening. Those skills of listening and paying attention will serve him well in the next phase of his life. After his four-month training at the academy, he becomes a full-fledged agent, badge in hand, and moves to San Diego. His first day on the job is mind-boggling. Tune into the next chapter of Diary of an FBI Agent, Part 2, Hot Pursuit.